Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. As a former partner and the head of global marketing for Goldman Sachs, our guest today is a bold risk taker who knows how to break glass ceilings. She's also the founder of Extraordinary Women on Boards and is a model for high-integrity leadership. Please welcome Lisa Shallot. Well, Lisa, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for this conversation. Well, thank you so much. You've got a story that I know is going to be really interesting to our, our podcast uh, listeners, to our audience. Um, I think about, you know, really the incredible, impressive career that you've had, the fact that you've broken glass ceilings, really becoming the chief marketing officer at Goldman Sachs, the head, head of marketing, um, forming extraordinary women on boards, a lot of different things that you've done. And we're going to get to those. Before we do, though, I know that a lot of what has defined you really has been a, a risk-taking character, it's a courage, it's a confidence. Talk a little bit about your life that led to some of the decisions you made in your career. Sure. Well, you know, I think the first big risk I ever took was going to Japan when I was age 16. I was given the opportunity at my high school, a regular old public high school, to uh, compete for a scholarship. And that scholarship would have enabled me to go live with a Japanese family for the summer between my junior and senior years of high school. And I guess it was the aspect of just competing for something that initially attracted me as opposed to really having any inkling that Japan was relevant to me beyond it being someplace in the world. I had no connection. I, I didn't speak Japanese. I am allergic to fish. I mean, there were so many reasons why Japan was not relevant to me. And yet somehow I competed for this scholarship. I won the opportunity to go to Japan. And my parents, who I guess must have been risk takers too, allowed me to go. And this was in the 80s, just to date myself, which was before the internet. It was not an easy place to go completely on the other side of the world and, and have any sort of real-time communication. It was expensive even to make a phone call if you could get the time difference right. And something drew me to it. And I think from that experience, I learned that taking smart risks can teach you to put yourself in uncomfortable situations and learn from them. And at a very early age, therefore, I had this enlightening experience where in a profoundly comfortable, uncomfortable situation, I somehow found a comfort level and ended up making a lot of decisions after that, chasing that feeling again. And a number of my career decisions uh, along the way were also inspired by that. One, for example, was after really establishing myself, making partner at Goldman Sachs in an area where I had tremendous expertise, which ended up being Japanese equities, I one day was offered the opportunity to completely switch divisions, completely switch roles, walk away from everything that had defined me up until that point. And somehow, even though everyone thought I was crazy, I was able to see that less as a risk and more as an opportunity to see that as a platform, to see that as a way to learn. And I 
walked away from my revenue role as a partner and moved in as a partner as the chief operating officer of global compliance of all things. And, you know, that uh, I really think was a pivotal part of my career honed from that early risk taking. So Lisa, it seems like the way you were, your mindset was really about opportunity. Even though there was risk, you were really about what can I learn? How can I grow? I mean, is that a fair observation? Absolutely. I like to look for what's possible. And it's so easy to always come up with reasons not to do things with risks. Um, Look, coming up with a good list of risks is a skill, but I always make sure to ask myself, what could go right? Where are there opportunities that this could create? And um, yeah, you know, how could I grow? And it's all about where is there an opportunity to learn and learn new things and test myself in new ways? What kind of exposure does this give me to things that I haven't been exposed to before? How does it stretch me? And, you know, who do I get to work with? Because that's a really big part of it. So it's interesting, though, when you think about how many times we can hold ourselves back because of fear, right? The fear of what if this doesn't work and so forth. It it sounds like your your view is, hey, I'm going to give this a shot. What would you say the impact of that type of a mindset or view has had on your career? I think that first experience of walking away from everything that had contributed to my identity and accomplishment and promotion and reputation at that point and doing something completely new led me to seek out those kinds of growth opportunities, to run toward them, to um, realize that as supportive as my network might be, um, that they weren't necessarily going to see the same things that I was going to see and would more likely talk me out of them. And as a result, now I have a mindset toward experimentation in anything. I like to think about upside and downside. And I really tend to make sure I'm thorough on the upside. And I don't think people do that enough. Yeah, they they don't. It seems like for every reason that we have to do something, we think of three why we can't. You know, and at the same time, there's a great quote, which is everything we want is on the other side of fear, right? And so, so when we overcome that fear, great things happen. So talk a little bit about what happened because your career has been anything but a straight line. So you, you became the global head of compliance, ultimately became the head of marketing for all of Goldman Sachs. Talk a little bit about that journey. You heard my Japan moment, and that really opened up a whole new set of, of possibilities and ways for me to view the world. But I never, ever imagined myself working on Wall Street. You know, some people at a very young age have a calling that pulls them toward whatever profession it might be. I had no exposure. I had no one in my family that worked on Wall Street. And also, you know, talk about limiting beliefs. I was a a liberal arts major, an East Asian studies major. And, you know, I just didn't even think that I was qualified to consider working on Wall Street. I assumed that you had to have a certain kind of more quantitative degree. And had I allowed myself to keep thinking that way, I would have completely boxed myself out of what has ended up being, you know, a a really amazing uh, career experience that I'm so grateful for. So I think that what happened was I found an opportunity that was Japan related, that brought me into Wall Street, I started to do this job called Japanese equity sales that allowed me to every single day learn new things and get better at my job, 
be surrounded by incredibly smart people who challenged me in a culture that was all about excellence, which it turned out was a great motivator for me. And then there I was uh, with an opportunity to some years later make a change and proceeded to continue to look at my career that way. So I moved into the chief operating officer of global compliance. The timing was quite amusing because it was right when the world started to blow up a little bit. And, you know, it was a moment of history in the financial markets when Bear Stearns blew up, Lehman blew up, companies like Goldman became bank holding companies. I didn't foresee that, but my goodness, did I have a front row seat. So whatever I thought the steep learning curves would be, I absolutely ended up with much more bang for the buck. And then I learned something amazing, which was I could actually raise my hand and ask for something. Up until then, opportunities came to me. They might have been curveballs that I didn't expect and went for, but I hadn't really raised my hand at that point. So my COO role in compliance stretched to legal, stretched to internal audit. I was across all three, which was fascinating, never a dull moment. And then when I raised my hand after four and a half years of doing, some, of doing that to um, you know, try something new and be incredibly open-minded as to what that next thing could be, because at that point I had the mindset of, you know what, bring it on, I'll learn. I'm confident in my abilities to learn and embrace uh, you know, discomfort. And the opportunity that I was given was in the executive office, the role of head of brand marketing and digital strategy. The and digital strategy part was added to the title because it was, if you can think back that long, um, it was when digital and social channels were first emerging and no one really knew what they were and it was added to my title so I would make sure to pay attention to it. But no one could have predicted the world that we're living in now. A week and a half into that role, you know, all of a sudden Goldman was hit by a major brand crisis. And that became an incredible opportunity to learn. And what I found was that because the financial crisis was coinciding with this dramatic change in the way marketing and advertising and analytics were being defined, given all of these technology changes and creative ideas coming into the space, creating all these new ways to communicate, it was this incredible level playing field moment where even if I had been a veteran marketer, I still would have had the same learning curves as someone who, like me, had been completely dropped in. And so uh, I instead saw a lot of ways to find similarities. You know, when you can measure everything and the world of marketing somehow immediately becomes quantifiable in ways that it hadn't, when data is overflowing in parts of the industry where that had never happened before, guess what? It felt really familiar. It felt like a trading floor. All of a sudden I had dashboards, all of a sudden I had data. And as unfamiliar as that felt for people who had been in marketing a long time, for me, felt like exactly where I had grown up. And so, you know, part of it is looking for similarities, finding the familiar in the unfamiliar. That's kind of been my experience ever since. It's interesting, though, that, that you're, it seems like you got to this point in your career where even though this is completely new, you'd raised your hand, you're trying something different. The other parts of your career really prepared you well for that new opportunity. And frankly, as I listen to you tell this story, your openness, your confidence, your determination to make it work really helped you level that learning curve. 
I mean, so that you were able to really rapidly get up to speed and at a critical time in the business where you were in the midst of a brand crisis if the person is the head of brand. Right. I think maybe it's an ability to de-risk things or to feel like there isn't a downside because you're always going to learn. That's just what's guided me ever since. And maybe it's given me a false sense of confidence that I can do pretty much anything, you know, maybe, maybe not, but I'm certainly willing to try. And, you know, I'm grateful to the Goldman culture for instilling in me a real passion about delivering value, finding ways to add value. And um, that kind of helps to lean into the upside. Talk a little bit, if you would, Lisa, about relationships and about really the skills that you found valuable to navigate these very difficult times, difficult circles, perhaps difficult cultures. Talk about that. Again, I'm going to bring you back to what I learned in Japan, because I really think there, I learned a lot about empathy. You literally have to put yourself in another person's shoes to make sense of your surroundings. And when I went to Japan, again, only 16, I really went with an attitude of why do they do things that way? Why do they take off their shoes? Why do they bow? And it was with a, a genuine curiosity, but it was still very rooted in my own perspective of the world up until that point. And, you know, by the end of that two and a half months, I grew so much that I was instead asking, why don't we do those things? I remember really having a light bulb moment about that. I really feel like that has affected how I do everything. It's how I think about leadership. It's about making sure that you take the time to understand and seek out another person's perspective, to have respect for that perspective and um, always feel like you can learn from anyone. And in fact, you know, I think most of my best ideas or best wisdom at this point is coming from people more junior to me who know a lot more than me. I just feel very lucky that they hang out with me and invest in me um, as opposed to, you know, it always being a top down other way around. So I kind of have a very 360 view of where I can learn from um, as a leader. And I really care and want to do whatever I can to help people and help them to recognize their own strengths. You know, I think people spend a lot of time on asking for feedback on their weaknesses. But if I were to then turn around and say, so what are your strengths? I get this deer in the headlight look. People haven't spent time on understanding what makes them excellent. And so, you know, I try to bring out those kinds of things and, and earn people's trust. It's interesting. You're right. People can have almost like a superpower that, that they don't focus on as much as what is the one thing I can, I can get better at. That, that's a good question to focus on what the weakness is, but what about the strength? You know, and going back to what you're saying, you can learn from anyone. I mean, it does take a certain humility really to have that, right? I mean, you're talking about empathy and humility and so forth, which were really key parts of, of your leadership. Is there anyone who stands out or who stands out in your life as someone who was a real mentor to you? Gosh, you know, I have so many. When I was moving up the ranks at Goldman and, and even, even once I was already a partner, there were two people who in particular, and frankly, even now, uh, 
really were amazing role models and mentors for me. One is uh, Suzanne Nora Johnson, and the other is um, Mark Schwartz. And I got to know both of them, working closely with them in my, my various roles across the firm over the years. And I would say what they taught me about the power of being a mentor, a sponsor, was that they believed in me unconditionally. It wasn't like when I showed up, I had to prove myself all over again. You, you reach a certain point where you're okay. That is a tremendous release. That is a trust. And they were always accessible and interested. They created a safe space for me and enabled me to come talk with them about anything. Now, it wasn't like I was knocking down their door every two minutes. I was careful and selective, but they were willing to give me truthful feedback. And even when that was tough, it was helpful. And, you know, importantly, they explained to me how things worked because sometimes it's easy to go through your career. You keep your head down and you just try to do a good job and hope someone will notice, but you don't take the time to really understand how things work. And it's great when you have those kinds of relationships. Sometimes your best mentors, even though not in the way that you mean, are people who also show you how not to be and how not to treat people. And I've learned some very important lessons in being miserable, most of those outside of Goldman Sachs, but sometimes you see an example that, that helps you understand what you are and what you're not. And you remember how you're treated and never ever want to treat anyone that way. And it's good to have those sort of scars and learning experiences also. Yeah, it is because like you said, it teaches us what we can do and what we also shouldn't do. So you left Goldman Sachs and yep. you started Extraordinary Women on Boards, which I want to ask you about in a moment. Before I do though, you know, one of the things that would be really interesting, and I think about my daughters, I've got four daughters, as you know, two sons as well. And it's really important for me. I want all my kids and especially I think about my daughters to be strong, confident, courageous young women. What advice would you have for young women who are at, you know, starting in their, their careers or different levels of their career about how to advance and really how to think about breaking glass ceilings? Sure. I'm thrilled that, you know, you're in a position to be such a great role model and, um, and just talk about possibilities for your daughters, because sometimes, you know, we end up unknowingly biasing outcomes. I would say the following things, like we just discussed, you know, make sure that you know your strengths and not just your weaknesses. Make sure that you're able to articulate what your superpowers are and really practice doing so and lead with that. Because, you know, sometimes humility can be misconstrued as really kind of downplaying your strengths. And it's really important for you to find your source of confidence. Be someone who brings positive energy because that makes people want to invest in you and really see you succeed. And often, like even if you're a very junior person, you can bring an attitude that just brightens up everyone else and the whole team. And, and, and often people get noticed for that. They can stand out for that before they're even in a position to really, really add value. To women, I say, especially, take a seat at the table. So often I have literally had to walk across the room and make a, a young woman or even a senior woman move to the table rather than sit on the side, stand in the back. 
The guys walk in and take their seat without thinking of it. The women agonize over this and you just have to take a seat at the table. I guess additionally, I would say, because I know that some women find this uncomfortable to do, but networking and building relationships is really important. And when you do it, don't just do it with people you're comfortable with. Don't just do it with women. Do so with confidence and realize that you have something to bring to the table. I think a lot of women think networking is a chore or that it's one way or that it's asking for or taking. And it's actually a situation where you, no matter what you're doing, have a perspective, have ideas, have a lot to give, and someone can learn a lot from you. So think about what perspective you can bring. And I think, you know, especially in talking to digital natives, um, you know, there's so much that, uh, you know, the, the junior senior thing breaks down over. And then I think the last thing I'll say is also related to relationships. And it is, you know, as you meet people, ask them to make a warm introduction to another person they think would be great, inspiring, instructive for you to meet. And then over time, you just collect these relationships. Hopefully you're listening during those discussions to think about how you're going to keep up that relationship. But those relationships could 10 years from now end up being tremendously important contacts for you. I think those are the things I would say. I mean, so much, so much richness in your advice. I mean, I think about myself, just that the value of networking and building those relationships over time. I think my favorite thing of what you've just said, though, is take a seat at the table. I mean, that's like a mantra. Take a seat at the table. You've got every right to be there. Go take it. And the attitude part of it, too. And just being someone who can have a positive force on anyone around them. So talk a little bit about what led you to found what is Extraordinary Women on Boards, uh, because now you're, you're helping other women gain seats at the table and uh, talk about that and what led you to start it. You know, it's funny. I, I wish I could tell you that I had some game plan and saw that this was going to be an important thing to do. I did not set out to start Extraordinary Women on Boards, which just... Um, to explain is is this amazing community of women corporate board directors on public and private for-profit boards who really want to be excellent board directors and want to get together as peers and share wisdom and help each other to be so effective on their boards. It's completely inspiring. But this all happened because once I left Goldman Sachs, and started to wander the streets of New York City, meeting lots of people, especially people who had just transitioned like me. I met a number of women and 15 times in a row had the same conversation. That conversation was, wow, it is so amazing to meet another woman on a corporate board. I just got on my board, I got on two boards and I'm the only woman on my board. I just don't know many other women on corporate boards. And this so surprised me. And you know, the first time, the second time I was like, okay, I didn't expect to be having that as the thing that made me interesting. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, 15 conversations later, I realized that there was an opportunity to take matters into my own hands. And I said, okay, I have now heard this 15 times. I'm going to get these 15 women together. I'm going to find a speaker on an interesting, relevant topic that they will care about. I will have him happen to be a guy buy lunch in a private room, I will fill the table with all of these women who want to meet each other and will have an interest in the topic and get free lunch. There was no downside. There was no way to refuse this. 
It was a phenomenal event. Everybody loved meeting each other. And even then I said, okay, my work here is done. Here's everyone's email addresses, have at it. Let's all stay in touch. And every single one of those women reached out to me and said, no, 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 do this again. And so as a complete side hustle, I would you know, curate topics. Turns out I'm good at that. I would find speakers. Turns out I have a great network for that. I would um, find a venue and somebody to host us over lunch or breakfast and get these women together. And increasingly what happened completely organically was that these women would start to ask me, hey, I know another woman on a corporate board. Can I bring her along? I think she'd benefit from this. And I said, sure. Long story short, and with a, a big growth spurt in the pandemic, which has allowed us to remove the constraints of physical locations and instead do everything virtually. Now this group is over 300 women and growing, and we get together quite often and it's completely magical. So that just sort of happened out of seeing some pain points, recognizing a need and taking some initiative. And I'm really so energized and inspired by it all. It's awesome that you did this. And I think back, I mean, even some of the things you talked about, you know, you talked about growth, you talked about really wanting to make a contribution and really you're helping make a contribution to other people, other women who want to grow, take a seat at the table. Is this a group that is open to anyone? How, if one of our listeners wanted to learn more about uh, this, this group, how would they do that? Well, you know, it's funny. I guess I'm getting to the point where I ought to have a website. You really can only find it by virtue of being referred by another member. So just to be crystal clear, um, as much as I absolutely believe in increasing diversity on boards, especially now, it's great that that's getting such a focus as it, as it always should have. This group is a peer-to-peer -peer network of women already on boards. I think that all of these women do their part, myself included, to mentor and help encourage women to get on their first board. I found that if you combine the populations and you have a lot of women aspiring to be on a board in the same conversation as a lot of women already on a board, somehow the conversation always is about how to get on a board. And what I found in this community is that there is a real need that isn't being met elsewhere, it seems, to have a peer group of women already on boards discussing how to be excellent at being on a board. And I think during this COVID period in particular, where we live in this world of emerging best practices, you know, it seems like there are, there are so many unexpected things. Boards have had to meet more often, deal with so many situations. It's so helpful to have this community. And so I distinguish and would say that if there's anyone who is on at least one public or private for-profit board and thinks that this community would be useful to you, they should just reach out to me on LinkedIn or whatever it might be. Okay. Well, that, that sounds good. And I know you are always open to talking to people. So thank you for making that, that offer. Sure. One, one last topic I'd like to talk to you about is Dale Carnegie. I know we've talked a little bit about how to win friends and influence people and the, yes. the influence that the Dale Carnegie principles have had on your career. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. You know, I remember Dale Carnegie's book being one of the first real business books that I ever read. And it, it is amazing how relevant it stays and how timeless these principles are. And, you know, I think that there are a few things I would point to that really, really resonate with me. One is a curiosity about and a respect for other people's perspectives. And I think that that really instills an attitude of inclusiveness, which is so important, especially now that we're all living on 
you know, um, Zoom screens and such. But it's also a desire to, to, to take the time to bring out the best in people. I think there's a proactivity to that. There's a, a mindset to that. And there's a win-win to that. That very much seems to be a theme running through Dale Carnegie's work and advice. There was one other principle, I guess, that stuck with me. And that is, I hope I don't misquote it, give someone a fine reputation to live up to. Perfect. That's it. Yeah. And that one reminds me of a really important experience that I had with one of the mentors that I named Mark Schwartz. Uh, so I'll tell you a little bit of a story, if that's okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I was taking a really important client to Japan. Because I speak Japanese, I was able to take that client around to visit you know, CEOs of companies that were in his portfolio or that he was considering investing in. And it was, it was an exhausting, very productive trip and definitely one where you get to know each other quite well because, you know, he can't even find the bathroom without my translation. So you, you get to really rely on one another. Anyway, one of the things I thought to do was to bring this client to see Mark, who at the time was the head of all Asia for Goldman Sachs. Mark very graciously made time to meet with this very important client, a relationship that I was investing heavily in and was hoping to grow. So I introduced the client to him and he turns around and says to the client, and I was floored by this. He said, I just want to let you know how lucky you are to be covered by Lisa Shallot. She is absolutely a rock star. She is someone who is a role model for everyone. In the, and, and he proceeded to go on, not too much, but just enough such that I had to remind myself to, you know, pick up my jaw from the floor to both hear him say things he had not even said to me, but to say it to a client with whom my relationship was relatively new. And, you know, that's a version of that principle because what he did was create a reputation for me to aspire to in the mind of my client. And you know what? Our relationship accelerated so much from there because for my client to hear my boss's boss's boss talking about me that way really just changed things. And I knew that I was you know, gonna do whatever I could to live up to that and never make him regret his words. And so when I read that principle, that example comes to mind and it makes me realize that even when we do something as simple as introducing someone to another person or introducing someone when they're going to speak at a conference or in a meeting, we have an opportunity to really credentialize them and put them in the best possible light. And that is a superpower sometimes that I think often gets overlooked and is a small thing that can make a huge difference for um, someone's career and how they're perceived. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in their career and their life and like, I mean, you can just see the impact that that had on you. Yes. And of course, hearing that, then you want to to rise to the occasion. And really, this is something that's not limited. We can do this for people all the time. We can do that for our kids. We can do that for people we work with. We can do it for people all around us. It's that looking and seeing the greatness that people have within them and recognizing that and calling that out and sometimes just reminding them that. Yes. So that's terrific, Lisa. And it's funny too, you know, the principle 17 about trying honestly to see things from the other person's point of view goes back to your empathy point in, in starting with the Japan experience. What an important thing then in all of the, I can see how so many of these Dale Carnegie principles really are a part of who you are and the amazing career that you've led. So Lisa, again, fantastic interview. Uh, it's going to be so great. I know people are going to love this. 
Any final closing thoughts or key lessons learned you'd want to share? Yeah, sure. You know, there are three things I'd love to share and I'll make them brief. One is that I have learned to really think a lot about my surface area of learning. How do I make sure that my view is wide and I'm constantly exposing myself to a lot of different things to learn? That just makes me smarter and it helps me ask really good questions. And that is something that I've found to be a really important skill that was never really taught to me early in my career. Two more things are don't let your job title define you because it's so important to think expansively about ways you can add value, how you can learn more, and how any role you have, um, you know, in part how we discussed, is just a platform for doing more. People limit themselves with their assuming that the skills that they have are tied to the context in which they've used them thus far. And I have learned, certainly from experience, that there are skills that can move across contexts and you shouldn't let people box you in. And then I think probably the most important thing, if I reflect on my years of working where I, where I have very few regrets, is that you know there's something to be said for thinking about how you are being proactive versus reactive or responsive. And especially if you're in a client business, you often have to respond, 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 be on call 24-7. But it's really important to pause and say, how are you spending your time? Are you building in enough time to think? Because if you do, then you're more likely to you know, come up with ideas and be able to reach out and invest in relationships proactively, as opposed to always you know, doing things other people want you to do. Yeah, such valuable lessons. And especially that last one, making sure we do make time to think. It's so easy to get busy to go from thing to thing to thing to meetings, but really thoughts are things and making that time to think constructively can be that it's proverbial sharpening the sauce. So Lisa, awesome. I know that our listeners are going to want to listen to this one over and over again. So many great insights. Thank you for being with us today and look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much. Me too. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.